All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, one of your hosts, and with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, I feel like I haven't seen you in 10 years. Well, I haven't seen you in person in a very long time, over two years, but I see you regularly uh, via Zoom. And I saw you like an hour or two ago via Zoom. (laughs) Uh, But then you went and warmed up near the fire, Josh. So I did. It's very cold. Man. Yeah, it's very cold in the the what used to be our library. Um, I, listeners, you can't see, but my bookshelves are completely empty, and the room I'm surrounded by boxes because my wife and I just purchased our first house, and we'll be moving soon. So, mm. but yeah, it's very cold in here. the The fire does not heat this part of the house. So, Bummer. but. But at least you have the opportunity to go sit near it and warm up. That's like the old school way. That's like how they did it like back, you know, in like the 18th century. Like there'd be a room in the house that was too cold. And so they'd leave that room and then they'd go to the other room and warm up. And then, you know, like, so you could call yourself a modern day revolutionary. And All so right. Wait, sure. <laughs> what a weird thing to talk about. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> Uh, but perhaps maybe we should we should move on because we do have another person here with us who I already showed my first introduction to them. I showed them my Tamagotchi. It was probably a bad move, <laughs> uh, but they stuck around. So that's a good sign. So <laughs> we do have a guest with us today. Her name is Stina Kielsmeyer Cook. Did I get it? Sweet. Yeah, you got it. Perfect. Stina, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's also cold where I am in Minneapolis, but I'm close to my radiator, which is keeping me warm. I don't have a fireplace, so I'm very jealous. But thanks for having me on the show today. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I I love Minneapolis. I've only been there, like been through once or twice, but one of my favorite musicians, Dan Rodriguez, is from Minneapolis. Uh, His awesome music. Um, Well, Stina, we just have a couple bio questions we wanted to ask you. the first one is near and dear to our heart. Um, being from Minneapolis, I'm excited for your answer. Uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, gosh. I'm going to betray my my home state. Uh, I mean, 
hockey was a big deal when I was in high school. So I can show my high school loyalty to the Roseville Raiders uh, in the suburbs of St. Paul. So there you go. (laughs) Awesome. 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 I was hoping, I was thinking you might say the Minnesota wild, but you know, I'm not a huge wild fan, but I'm glad you went with Roseville. That's, that's also nice too. (laughs) But, but then a little bit more serious. um, Who are you? What do you do? uh, What's life look like for Stina? Yeah, so my name is Dina. I live in Minneapolis where I work for an organization called the Collegeville Institute. Um, It's an ecumenical center nonprofit based on the grounds of St. John's Abbey, which is one of the largest Benedictine monastic communities in North America. And I work mostly remotely from my home here in Minneapolis. I was doing that even before the pandemic. I'm also a wife and a mother. I've got two kids, one who's a kindergartner, one who is in third grade. Um, I'm a writer and yeah, just here because I published my very first book in 2020, um, which is pretty exciting milestone. Um, Yeah, yeah. definitely. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, And then one other bio question we like to ask this, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And we've as of late felt it important to ask What's what's the, been the most important aspect of your faith that you have had to rethink? Ooh, that's a really. I feel like I could I could you know give you a laundry list, so it's kind of hard to identify one thing. Um, but I guess for the purposes of this conversation, one of the key things I've had to rethink is um, that the only way to have a successful marriage is if you share the same faith. That's been one of the biggest shifts that I've and journeys that I've been on in the last maybe seven, eight years. Um, because that was definitely not the message I was told in all of the faith formation that I had growing up um, around relationships and what it means to have a yeah, God at the center. That was very much the language that was used. And and I think I've learned um in and through my husband's deconversion that you can still have a wonderful relationship and marriage even if you don't share the same beliefs. Um, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, that, that's a perfect segue into our topic then, uh, because perhaps you already knew this or could guess or deduce (laughs) the fact that, uh, you did put out a book amongst in a pandemic, which is crazy. So, uh, good on you for getting it out there. Uh, but it's called blessed are the nuns mixed faith marriage and my search for spiritual community. Uh, quite literally, as soon as I saw the cover and title of your book come across my screen, I uh, hit up uh, Krista from IVP and was like, we have to talk to Sita. <laughs> and Krista's been super helpful. So uh, we're excited to have you on. Thank you so much. Um, I have, as I was, I was telling you prior to us starting this recording, uh, we have so many listeners uh, that are asking the kind of questions that you address in your book, uh, who, um, you know, myself and Marty, uh, it is not our experience that we are currently in a mixed faith marriage. And so we, you know, we can share some thoughts. Uh, but when it comes from real life, <laughs> from someone's actual story, it's so much more powerful. So we're so excited uh, that you're here. We're excited to to learn from you and, and share your story with our listeners. So thank you for hopping on. Yeah, of course. So the, the first thing that I want to ask, though, is just, um, I guess, kind of personal. What led you 
to even want to write about such a vulnerable and messy topic such as this? Yeah, <clears throat> sometimes I ask myself that question too. Um, no, but the, the real reason why I wanted to write this book was um, about seven years ago when my husband deconverted, I found myself looking through my bookshelves because that's kind of how I cope with issues <laughs> is trying to find a book about that topic to learn more, um, to find stories of other people who've gone through similar dynamics in their relationships. And I did find books that address this kind of issue, but all of them kind of came at it from this idea of, you know, oh, you are now unequally yoked. This is a bad thing. This is a tragic thing. And here's how you, as this believing partner, can pray your, you know, spouse back to faith. And it was very unhelpful. <laughs> um, and I knew I didn't want to write a how-to book um, in that same kind of vein, because I don't think that these issues can be approached in a didactic way like that. Um, but I, I wanted to share my story because I wish that I'd had a story to read um, during that time period. So I think if you're a reader who is also, you know, writing on the side or whatever, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I've, I've learned so much from other people who've been willing to go before me and be vulnerable about a facet of their lives. Um, now it's my job to kind of add to the, the canon, I guess, or add to the libraries um, with my story because it was something that I just really found, like there just wasn't a whole lot out there that was really talking about these things in honest ways and in ways that also acknowledged, um, you know, if you're the person who still holds on to the faith, that you too might be going on a faith journey and you too might be questioning things. Um, and so less of a kind of black and white sort of view on what it looks like to be in, in a partnership like this. Yeah, that's, um, that's so good. And it just, it reminds me of uh, a phrase that um, Marty and I have kind of been holding pretty near and dear ever since uh, it was shared with us. And we've, we've brought it up multiple times, probably ad nauseum on the podcast now. So listeners probably know what I'm going to say. Uh, but we had a conversation with Rob Bell and he talked about this idea of, um, there's an, an invitation in sharing your story and going deep enough so that other people find themselves in your story. Um, and I just want to commend you because you knocked that out of the park <laughs> with, uh, with your book. Because uh, like I said, it, um, your story isn't my story, but I found myself in so many different places in so many different ways uh, in your story throughout the book. So, so thank you for that. The, the honesty and the vulnerability, the transparency is um, really helpful and beautiful. Well, thanks. Yeah. So I guess the best place to start might be from the beginning. Can you just tell us about your faith upbringing? Um, how did it impact your thoughts and beliefs on dating and marriage? If it was, if it was like mine, you, you, you already used the term unequally. Um, I remember being at youth group and, you know, purity culture being taught about, you know, just say no to dating if they're not a Christian and that kind of stuff, you know, kiss dating goodbye, all those different things. So what was that like for you growing up? Yeah, well, I I grew up kind of in the mainline church. Um, my mom is a Presbyterian pastor, so I didn't have some of the more conservative evangelical upbringings that some of my peers did. But I did go to Bible camp every summer. I did sit in on the youth group meetings talking about um, you know dating. I did read I Kissed Dating Goodbye as a as a teenager. Um, 
So I was influenced by the movement um, around purity culture and around, you know, what, what dating and relationships should look like in the 90s. Um, and I went to an evangelical college and that was kind of the place where a lot of the messaging kind of coalesced for me. There's a, a tower on campus that has like a bell, like a bell tower. And whenever someone got engaged, they would go up to the tower and ring the bell. Like that's how common <laughs> engagements would, would happen. And it was kind of expected that during these four years, you know, or soon thereafter, you would hopefully find your godly spouse. Um, and that is where my husband and I met. Um, so that was kind of like the air around us. I remember reading things like Elizabeth Elliot's Passion and Purity. Um, Elizabeth Elliot uh, was a alum of the college where I went. So there was just a lot of, yeah, information that supported this idea that, you know, you really needed to find a believer to partner with in order to serve God. Um, and I, and I don't disagree with, you know, parts of that message. I think that it's easier to be in a relationship where you share a faith tradition. I don't want to discount, you know, that part of it. But I, but I think the things that are really unhelpful about that is if you don't, you know, if you do veer from that story, um, again, it's framed in this really tragic way or this way that seems like, you know, if this is literally the foundation then what do you do if that's no longer the foundation? It makes you just, uh, yeah, think that you're doomed to fail, which is, I don't think is actually true. Yeah, that, um, <laughs> no pun intended, but that rings very much true uh, from my experience as well. Um, I didn't go, I guess the college I went to wasn't, isn't considered evangelical. In fact, some people label it as like, oh, they're just a bunch of liberals, which I thought was funny. Uh, but I went to Messiah College, uh, which is now Messiah University. And uh, when you were talking about ringing the bell, it just, it made me smile because we had this thing on campus called Ring by Spring, which everyone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's familiar. Yeah, we would joke about, you know, like people trying to find their their husband or wife there at college and then they would push like, you know, get married right away, uh, you know, and all this kind of stuff, which is, I mean, oddly enough, I, I met my wife um, in, I guess, technically in middle school in eighth grade. We started dating uh, the summer after our freshman year in high school. So the ring by spring thing didn't apply to us, even though we did get married like right after college, uh, but we had been together for a, for a long time after that or before that rather. Um, but yeah, so you mentioned uh, your husband who, by the way, has a very cool name. His name is Josh. Um, <laughs> not that I'm biased or anything, uh, but can you just share a little bit about, I know you just mentioned it, how you met Josh. Um, and when you guys uh, first got married, you had some aspirations. What did that look like uh, for you guys when you were first, uh, you know, newlyweds or whatever? Yeah, so I first met Josh because he had organized like a week of like prayer and fasting at our college for four because that was like the big thing that was happening. Um, I think this was like 2004, 2005. Um and I worked for the campus paper. So I was doing a special like section on like refugees, refugee resettlement and, and looking at the Darfur crisis and trying to bring a campus connection to that story. So I remember interviewing him and one of his friends who had organized this and just being like, wow, you know, I totally connect with this passion for, for Jesus, this desire to, um, you know, really embody things that 
you know, Isaiah 58 is all about in terms of setting the captives free and, and being about justice and really resonated with that. So I was like, okay, this guy, this guy is someone who I connect with, who I think is really cute. Um, and, you know, after that, we ended up on the same spring break missions trip uh, to Denver, Colorado, where we worked in homeless shelters. And, um, you know, it was like half like go snowshoeing in the mountains, half do service together. And um, yeah, so we were on this trip and we actually drove from Chicago area in a bus um, to Denver and back. And it was kind of in, in and through that, seeing each other kind of doing service and action that we kindled our romance. and. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the origin story. And we were really enamored by um, kind of the new monastic movement, which was also really popular at the time. Shane Claiborne came and spoke at our college and, you know, kind of whipped up a lot of, you know, socially justice minded Christians like myself into conversations around, well, how do we live intentionally? And how do we do Christianity differently than we see, you know, maybe our parents did or um, you know, other, we, we labeled other Christians as, you know, not really living the real way, um, which in hindsight was pretty arrogant. Um, but we ended up then soon after getting married, um, working and living in an intentional Christian community in rural Georgia, the state, not the country, and uh, working with refugees there. And yeah, so we were pretty darn idealistic. And for a while, we're really contemplating like, were we going to make a long-term commitment to staying in this intentional community and ultimately decided not to, which given the trajectory of things was a good decision, but really the foundations of our relationship were based on this really idealistic dream around what it looked like to live radically for God, um, which, you know, when you've got big starry eyed visions, it kind of sets you up for a big crash. Cause as we all know, as we get older, I mean, depending on, on how life goes, for most of us, you know, things aren't, things don't usually turn out exactly the way we, we imagine they do when we're in our early 20s. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. I've been married for 11 and a half years. And the Same. story, <laughs> the story that um, my, my wife and I have um, now, I remember on our, on the way to our honeymoon, uh, we made a list, each of us of 10 places we wanted to visit before we had kids. And then we narrowed that down to one list of 10, um, between the two of us that we were going to, we were going to travel. We were going to visit, we were going to get, and in 10 months, our son was born. <laughs> way to go party. So, <laughs> so life, life did not go the way we intended it to be. And then now we have four, um, and they were one right after the other. Um, so now our oldest is is 10, almost 11 and our, our youngest is six. So we're, we're definitely not in a place where like we could get on a plane and travel tomorrow if we wanted to, um, even if COVID wasn't a thing, uh, without significant repercussions or figuring things out. So we totally understand that whole, how life doesn't always go the way you want it. Um, you had mentioned that it was about seven years into your, into your marriage that Josh told you that he didn't believe in God anymore. Um, it was actually, no, it was seven years from, ago from now. So it was probably okay, okay. about maybe three years into our, our marriage. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you. I mean, I'm sure there was a, a whole lot of different things that happened with that. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said earlier on that, you know, we were both kind of going through our own faith 
you know, transformation post-college, you know, when you're out in the real world, it's very different than when you're in a, you know, protected environment where everyone kind of believes the same as you do. So we were both kind of re-examining and rethinking our faith together. And he was kind of going off in a different direction around, you know, really exploring other faith traditions. Um, He's a scientist and was in a master's degree program in, you know, plant pathology at the University of Minnesota. So he was also around a lot of scientists who, um, you know, it it was his first time being in a non-Christian environment um, academically. So, yeah, I think we were kind of just, you know, having conversations, you know, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about that. And then it wasn't until we were actually visiting his family um, in North Carolina. His parents were missionaries at the time, but they were home on furlough. And in and through listening to him talking to his dad, he actually said, yeah, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe that. And, you know, it's not that I hadn't heard him say similar things, but it's different when you hear that those words to another person. And especially because it provokes such a strong reaction, a very fear-based reaction from his dad, which, you know, was very understandable um, given the theology that, you know, they were operating under. And so, yeah, that was really the first time that I really was plain, like this is, this was happening. And also pretty soon there afterwards, he was like, yeah, I just don't, I don't want to go to church, you know, and that had been something that we had been doing together. And at that point I had a two-year-old and um, I had just had a miscarriage and we were just about, we got pregnant a couple months later with our, our second, but it was just also like a really vulnerable time, you know, like fresh young parenthood when you're just sleep deprived. And, you know, for me, I, you know, wasn't necessarily intending to become a stay-at-home parent so early on either. And so I think there was a lot of other identity shifts and just relationship shifts that we were experiencing, trying to figure out how to be adults, how to be parents together. And then you throw this into the mix and yeah, it was, it was very disorienting, very difficult. And we, we did go to counseling, which really was helpful in terms of helping process through. And it's taken a lot of time to kind of go through the cycles of grieving kind of the things that I had kind of hoped that we would share. Um, But I will say that over time, especially if you keep the lines of communication open, especially if you can respect and support the other person, especially if you can start to see your love and commitment as being beyond um, some kind of like religious confinement, you know, like that, that you don't have to, it's not a prerequisite, you know, to love someone that you share this faith, even in your most intimate relationships, but it takes a while to kind of get there. And so, yeah, in the initial months and even the first few years, I feel like I just was in a process of really needing to kind of grieve and let die um, the dream and the idea that I had for my life that just was clearly not going to happen the way that I expected it to. Yeah. And um, I wonder, um, what was the experience and the response like um, from the church that you both attended? I, 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 um, I'm curious about how that, how that went and what that looked like for you guys. I mean, was it something you just walked in one day and said, hey, by the way, or like, how did that all go? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing, like, to announce, you know, by the way, Josh doesn't believe in God anymore. Um, no, so we were attending a, a really small service-oriented Mennonite church in, in Minneapolis at the time. And so it was really small and tight-knit. So people noticed that Josh wasn't there. And I kind of opened the book 
with a letter to, you know, the reader of the book saying, you might, if, if, you know, if you're opening this book, there's a good chance that someone you love may have lost their religion. And that's kind of the first kind of public experience of that is when you go into a church alone, if, if this is like your marriage, you know, your spouse. And, you know, people will ask you, you know, where, where is Josh today? Like, uh, and, and for a while you're like, well, he, you know, he's doing some homework or, you know, making, making excuses. And then at some point you're just like, why am I hiding this? Like, this is just where he's at, but it, it does create kind of an awkward dynamic. Um, I will say that in the church that we attended, people were incredibly gracious and loving and kind and not at all, you know, like, um, you know, telling us that, you know, this was like not trying to coerce us into something that wasn't um, helpful in that situation. So mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like we had any kind of real negative responses beyond just me sometimes feeling like, oh, am I an object of pity now, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think it's because there aren't a lot of good stories out there um, of people who are in mixed faith relationships. But, you know, now that I think about it, there were two other couples in that small little Mennonite church where it was one person, you know, attending and the other not attending who reached out to me pretty soon thereafter and told me their stories. And so I think that that was really helpful um, to just see, I think in any church that you attend, you're going to find people where one, you know, one marriage partner is there and the other one isn't. I just think it's Mm -hmm. a fairly common thing just isn't something that is generally brought to the center of conversation. Yeah. Well, and I guess just one other piece on that, and this is kind of a sensitive question, so I apologize. I realize that we're talking about this. So um, did you or Josh or in any way have any sort of feelings uh, or thoughts around divorce or like how did that all come together? Because not that you should have, but I'm just kind of curious, like, was that a part of the of the thought process and conversation? How did that work its way out or in or? Yeah, it's funny because I, I had someone early on ask me that same question. I think she said something like, are the, are the marriage vows still valid? Which was just such an interesting way of thinking about it. And then, you know, it did make me turn back to like, we had used like the traditional Episcopalian um, Book of Common Prayer vows in, in our wedding ceremony. And they do, you know, talk a lot about, you know, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, you know, like that's kind of the language. Um, but I think... I don't know. I think there was just like a stubbornness. I I just think that I was like, both of us were just kind of stubborn um, and not, you know, never really got to the point where we were seriously talking about separating. I do know lots of couples though, who have been in this situation who have separated or divorced. And I think it just, it's really particular, right. To the dynamics of any one relationship. And I think, if there can't be that common mutual respect and support. Um, and, you know, there, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that can go into that. So I think that if anyone is in this situation listening, you know, talking to a trusted counselor or a therapist, going to couples counseling, you know, Josh has always been 100% on board with doing counseling too. And I think that, you know, not, not every couple has that kind of willingness to try to work things out. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, something that people in the situation might consider, you know, and I think that there are good reasons for people to divorce the situation. 
Um, and I think in our case, yeah, I just think we were stubborn, held on. And I think with time, I think we've realized that, you know, you can form a loving partnership uh, based on other things beyond just religion. And um, yeah, that's been a really beautiful thing to see. <sighs> yeah, thank, well, thank you uh, for, for diving in so deep, or, you know, right off the bat with us. Um, it's interesting because as, as I was reading through your book, um, I was thinking about the, you know, kind of the relationship I have with my wife, Noelle. Um, and so when Noelle and I first started, you know, talking about getting married and all this kind of stuff, I had no intentions of uh, becoming a pastor, which is what I do full time now. I'm uh, currently a high school and young adult pastor. And she always has kind of had this like, I'm not going to be a pastor's wife kind of thing. It has never been uh, Noel's top choice that I became a, a pastor. So it's kind of, it's interesting because she has a, a very deep faith, a very real faith, um, a, a very uh, deep, you know, prayer life and things like that. And um, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. She's always kind of been for me, like the voice of reason, um, in my experience, because thus far that, so I've, I'm 26 years old. I've worked in three churches. The first two were uh, shit shows to say the least. That's a nice way of putting it. That's how I met Marty was in the first one. Um, but Noel has always kind of been the voice of reason. Like, Hey, this isn't right. You know, something is not going on here is whatever. So it's just, it was like an interesting dynamic, just thinking about um, some of the parallels, but also not parallels at the same time. Like there's some kind of connection there. Um, but anyway, that's a tangent. Um, throughout everything that was going on, uh, you somehow ended up getting connected with a group of nuns. And typically when we say the word nuns on this show, uh, we're talking about nuns as in N-O-N-E-S, people who identify as, you know, not religiously affiliated. Uh, however, in this case, I actually mean nuns, like <laughs> Catholic sisters, um, which is why I love the title of your, your book so much, Blessed Are the Nuns, because you do spell it N-O-N-E-S, uh, but it's a, a play on words there. Um, so how in the world did you end up getting connected with a group of nuns? Yeah, so in you know, earlier on, I spoke a little bit about my job. You know, I work for this ecumenical center that's based on the grounds of, a, of an abbey. And as a, you know, thorough Protestant, I was really intrigued when I started working for this organization about the monastic people that I would see walking around with their long black robes and um, just was really curious about, you know, their life and lifestyle. And, you know, I we had also, you know, flirted with the new monastic movement, which also draws on, you know, Benedictine principles. And so I'd had some exposure to that. I'd read Kathleen Norris's books. Um, but, you know, encountering some real people, I, I was just intrigued. And um, Josh and I went to a dinner that was hosted by the organization I worked for, the Collegeville Institute, to celebrate its 50th anniversary, um, where Kathleen Norris, who is the author of the book, The Cloister Walk, spoke um, but we were also seated at a little table with a nun and she told us that she, let me think, 
It was her 60th year of being a professed nun. Um, and she was telling us about, you know, her celebration, her jubilee that she was going to be celebrating. And we were just like, you know, wow, this is incredible. This is a person who's lived their entire life in the confines of a committed, you know, being a part of a committed community. Um, and I also just was really struck by the way she interacted with Josh because she asked him about his story. She was super easy and warm to talk to. And when she, when he was, you know, telling her about, you know, being a missionary kid and, um, you know, no longer identifying as Christian, she didn't respond with any fear, which was something that was really striking to me as someone who, you know, is in more conservative evangelical spaces. Um, people generally react fearfully when they hear that Josh is no longer a Christian, because what does that mean then for his salvation? Um, and so I was really struck by that. I was like, wow, what, what is that? Like, what is that, you know, ability to stay present, in, even though someone, you know, is sharing a viewpoint that really differs with your own? And, you know, she's the spiritual director, so she has some training in this too. Um, but I noticed that just across the board with the monastic people that I encountered, is that there just was a really easy presence um, in relating to religious outsiders, which was very different. You know, I had, like, I knew how to try to evangelize to people, you know, that was something that I had done in these service trips, like I mentioned, where Josh and I had first met. And so it was a really different approach. And it, you know, she talked about, no, you just have to trust that you're on a journey with God. And if, and if God is really good, I can trust in that goodness and not try to force things. So that was the first Catholic nun that was really intriguing to me. And so I was trying to set up a time to go and see her for spiritual direction, but she and the Abbey were over an hour away and with small kids and trying to juggle work. I was like, how am I going to get to, you know, get to the Abbey, um, get to St. Benedict's to see her. And we were out in our neighborhood. We had just moved to a new house in North Minneapolis, didn't really know the area. And we were out trick or treating and we walked into this normal looking house and there was a group of old ladies with candy, you know, commenting on my kids' costumes. And, and I noticed some of the art on the walls. I noticed some of the prayer books that were out. And one of the women was like, this is Visitation Monastery. And it was literally, you know, six blocks from my house on the same street. And I thought it was, you know, one of those moments where you feel like God is kind of winking at you, like here, you thought you had to travel, you know, an hour and 20 minutes to go see this nun. Um, and here is this community, a monastic community of Catholic sisters who is literally, you know, on the same street as you. And so I knew, I just knew that I had to go back. I knew I had to learn a little bit more about them. And so yeah, the book really takes you through one liturgical year and my experience being in formation um, in a spiritual, a spiritual formation group called, um, there, there were, you were being formed to become a visitation companion. So the visitation order of sisters um, follows uh, the teachings and writings of St. Francis de Sales, who you know, was alive in the 1600s and St. Jane de Chantel. And so this is like a tradition and way of thinking about spirituality that I knew zero things about. And um, I joined the study group that they had that met in the, in their basement once a month. And we read a little bit of the writings of St. Francis of Sales. We talk about kind of his philosophy of spirituality. And then at the end of that year, 
if you felt so led, you could um, kind of make a commitment to be a companion to the monastery. So it was kind of a way for me to still live out my desire to be a new monastic, which would have been the original core of the dream, um, but in my own context. And I could go as a single person and not feel, you know, like there was something wrong with me. And at the same time that I found um, the sisters in my neighborhood, I start, had started going to a new church maybe about six months earlier. I didn't know a lot of people. I was going by myself with my two little kids trying to talk to people during the fellowship hour while they're like darting around the room. And it just, you know, as someone who's an introvert, as someone who's, you know, already struggling, feeling like I, I don't really fit, there was just such a marked difference of just going by myself to the monastery, joining the sisters for prayer. They pray the liturgy of the hours, learning about this very gentle spirituality. Um, spirituality is just very, yeah, very different than the kinds of strains of Christianity that I was used to. So that's a big part of the book is kind of learning about Catholic saints, learning about um, women who've lived out their faith apart from, you know, a husband and realizing like, this is not that abnormal. And actually, this is something that God can use. It's not something that has to be seen as a failure or a tragedy. It can be something that is redeemed and beautiful. Yeah, that's that's awesome. The um, the mystics and the, the saints have played a major role uh, for me personally, um, you know, within, I guess, the last year and a half or so, uh, really, um, has helped my own, you know, personal spiritual faith journey, whatever, um, in, you know, such a wide variety of ways. Um, and so I know literally this next question is I'm asking you your book, like the whole thing. So acknowledging that what are like one or two of the most valuable lessons you feel like you have learned thus far um, in your experience and community um, with the nuns? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, one of the, the first thing that comes to mind is I wrote a, a chapter in the book um, on relinquishment, which is this idea of you know, releasing and letting go of something that is dying so that it can die a good death and trust that then God can grow something maybe new from, from that same soil. And I saw this in the sisters' lives because if you look at um, Catholic monastic life, you know, and the trends in terms of how many women and men are joining monastic communities, they've seen a really steep drop off in terms of numbers of people who are choosing that kind of lifestyle. And so this particular order of Catholic sisters, you know, they, you know, people were 90, 91 years old, you know, there's a number, the youngest member was, you know, in her early fifties, but they were literally dying out. Um, and there was no guarantee that this monastic community was going to exist in, you know, 15 years. And, you know, we see this in the church broadly, where in certain denominations and certain congregations, lots of churches are having to close their doors as, as numbers dwindle. And I think there's a lot of fear and loss and mourning that comes with that for good reason, right? Um, and I, I really related to that in seeing um, how the sisters just continue to have faith and trust. They said, 
you know, that they still believed that the spirit was going, was moving and doing wondrous things. And they continued to live out their commitments in spite of what others might see as, you know, a failure. Um, and that was really a good spiritual lesson for me because, you know, grief is not something that is linear, right? So when, you know, I think, you know, at this point in my spiritual journey um, and in my relationship with Josh, you know, I, I feel like I've, you know, moved through most of it, but there'll, there'll still be moments where something will catch me and I'll feel that feeling of, oh, this is hard, or I wish it wasn't like this, or this hurts. Um, and every time that happens, you have a choice of like, you know, trying to hold on and trying to change it or relinquishing that, letting it go, trusting that God is still God, that God is still good. God can still be good in the lives of people who don't believe the same as we do. But that takes a lot of trust and it takes a lot of um, prayer. It takes a lot of um, community, I think, to model for you what that looks like. And that's something that I saw the sisters doing time and time again. And I would say that for anyone who's in a relationship where that person is no longer believing the same as you do, and, and that's a painful thing, trying to figure out ways to, to like literally take your hands and try to release that. Um, sometimes even embodied prayers can help that way. Um, that's been a really important part of me then being able to actually love and support Josh just as he is without trying to change him, without trying to draw him over to my side. And, and that comes from a deep faith and trust that God can still be good, which, you know, it can be hard. It can be really hard. So that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, what I hear you, you saying there and, and um, for whatever reason, it, it gives me kind of like, a, I don't know if excitement is the right word. Um, joy comes to mind, even peace. Uh, but there's something about a, a deep and true faith in the God that is good that to use, you know, uh, some biblical language uh, helps to, you know, give us that peace that passes understanding. Um, and I just, I hear that so much in your story, um, and in how you talk about your story and even in your writing, um, and that can only come from a deep, uh, place of, um, faith and, and by that, that deep place of faith, I, I'm, I'm not talking about, um, some kind of, uh, assent to some list of ideological claims, uh, or something like that, but rather a deep faith in an experiential God. Um, yeah, that just, I don't know. It's, there's something there and, uh, and I can feel it. So um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. I don't, I don't know if I do that all the time, but um, that's, that's the goal, right? Yeah. I, well, I think, um, I don't know really if, if anybody can exude that all the time. I think, I think part of not exuding it all the time is, is uh, a part of what I mean by having deep faith uh, is being willing to say, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Or Rachel Held Evans, um, who is somebody that I really looked up to um, before she uh, passed away. She always would use this phrase, you know, on days when I believe. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, ah, that's, that's the kind of deep faith I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, is when we can say in unison with Rachel, you know, on, on days when I believe. Um, I just, I think there's something beautiful about that. Another word that comes to mind is wisdom. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. Rachel had such a great way of, of speaking about what faith really feels like in a day-to-day reality. And I think that when, yeah, you're told that it really is that mental ascension to X, Y, Z, you know, she modeled that, yeah, you know, our faith can be sturdy enough for these questions or for these admissions around what, what humanity, you know, what being human actually is like, like our minds are constantly filled with different thoughts and, Um, belief has to be about more than just what our thinking is on any give at any given moment. And I think it then goes back to the choices and, you know, what you're choosing to cultivate right in your life. And I think that one thing that I've seen too, in my relationship with Josh is that you can share a lot of values. You can share a lot of uh, meaning and purpose with someone who doesn't necessarily, you know, believe in the full, you know, the full Christian story. Um, and yet there's, there are some underlying just things about being a human being person um, that you can both mutually agree. Yes. This is something I value. This is something that I want to work towards. And um, I think, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't share, you know, the Jesus story with my kids, or I don't think that belief isn't important or what you think isn't important. Cause I do, but I think sometimes we limit it to, you know, this set of things. And, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, what are my kids going to think if, you know, I, you know, ostracize or other their dad, my, you know, husband, because of what he thinks about X, Y, Z. Like, how is that actually modeling um, something that is at the core of Christianity. It, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that they can't know that there are differences um, or that we, you know, that I'm participating in the life of the church and he's not. Like, they, they are very aware of that. But I think how we approach difference also says a lot about what Christianity is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And along those lines, Dina, like, could you talk a little bit about how your relationship with Josh has grown and evolved since he deconverted from Christianity? Like, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, um, I think the biggest challenge has been um, trying to find mutual community. I think when you're a Christian and you share a faith tradition, there's certain things that you that are just default, right? Like you maybe share a practice of attending church together or you're, you know, and then when you're in a church building, you know, you hear about this opportunity or you're socializing with this person. And so I think in some ways we've had to be a lot more intentional than maybe we would have if we were still both Christians, because we've had to dig in a lot more. It's not just by default. It's, you really have to say, well, what, what do you really care about and how do you live that out? Um, And it's, it's hard because you feel like you're bushwhacking because there isn't this set like, here are the rituals, like, this is how you're going to do the holidays. Like, you don't have this community around you to help you, you know, do those things and to support you as you, as you try to live them out. Um, but I think then it, on the, on the flip side is that, yeah, you, you, you talk a lot more about, about those things. And, um, you know, we just went through Advent and that's always been a really tricky season. Cause I, I love Advent. I've, it's one of my favorite parts of the, of the church calendar. And it's really important to me that I practice it with our kids. I want our kids to know it, um, to know what those uh, rhythms and rituals look like. And yet trying to do it as a family feels really 
uncomfortable because, you know, depending on what Advent guide I would try for that year, there was always some, you know, apocalyptic scripture or some, you know, psalm about, you know, people drowning in the waters of disbelief or something like that, that just would always like strike that wrong chord and just feel like, oh, this is just not working. And so, you know, we've adapted our Advent rituals to be a little bit more inclusive. Like I still have the time where I talk about the Jesus stuff and about, you know, the Christian stuff, but we also talk about, you know, we read a book about how animals prepare for the winter. You know, we talk about the winter solstice and about, you know, what happens when the light starts to return. You know, there's a lot of themes and ways that we can talk about a lot of the same sort of truths, underlying truths that make it so that both of us, you know, can create this family culture together, but it's not easy. It's, and, and sometimes I wish that we could just fall back on the default because man, there's a lot of resources out there if you share faith with your, with your spouse. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I wonder, and I was kind of thinking is the next question I was going to ask you was how you guys have navigated that with your children. Um, and I think, I think around Advent is a, is a great time to kind of look at that and, you know, put it under a lens or I guess under a microscope, but what's, how, what does that look like on a normal day-to-day when it's, you know, January 11th on a Monday um, and you guys are navigating that and how does that work together with you guys and how, what do you do with that? I mean, in terms of like faith traditions at home? Yeah. Faith with the kids. Um, I, I think specifically, cause I, I don't know, Josh, um, it, it sounds like he's a respectful person. So I don't, I don't envision him at the, at the breakfast table and you doing a devotional and him scoffing and, you know, laughing at things like that. I, I envision him, I envision you and him having conversations around the things that you want the kids to know and the things that um, he's uncomfortable with teaching them himself. And so what, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, with the pandemic, it's, it's been harder, I think, um, because, you know, we're not, you know, I'm not going to church with the kids. I think that that was, I really have leaned hard on my church community because it is a lot to feel like you're the sole, you know, person in, in, you know, giving your kids a faith education, you know, you're not sharing that with someone else. And so sometimes I've felt that burden feel fairly heavy on my shoulders, like, how are they going to know about Jesus? How are they going to know this story? It's, it, and I, you know, that wasn't my experience growing up in my family. So um, I've really leaned hard on my church and, you know, have, we have a wonderful children's pastor, really love, you know, the different Sunday school teachers and people who've been part of that faith formation. So, and, and Josh, to his credit has, you know, always been supportive of me bringing the kids to church. I think, you know, that's one of those dynamics that if you're, in a relationship where the the partner isn't supportive of that, then I think it can be a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to raise your kids. Um, it's not that though, that Josh doesn't want to know, like, well, what are you guys talking about? You know, like what kind of theology is this? And I think it helps that, you know, we attend a, a fairly progressive American Baptist church um, because it is pretty inclusive uh, as a space. And, you know, I have been, a Sunday school teacher myself in, and so I kind of know like what the curriculum is. And, you know, so we talk about that and, 
And I think that that makes a big difference to kind of understand, okay, this is, this is the kind of religious education that, that our kids are getting. They're getting, you know, biblical literacy, they're understanding, you know, what the stories are, and they're in a community of people who are trying to serve their neighbors and love their neighbors. And, you know, that's, that's the church. Um, and I think there's no doubt in my mind that when they get to be adolescents and young adults, they're going to know that there's other options than just being a Christian because they'll have seen that in their, you know, their own family. So I'm not worried about them not, you know, feeling like this is the only way to be. Um, I think it's more on the other side that sometimes I feel fear of like, well, what if they don't know that this is a beautiful, holy thing? Like, what if I'm not doing a good enough job modeling that for them? So that's, that gets tricky. And one thing that has helped is that, we're in a small group of other interfaith couples um, where there's, you know, one partner who's Christian and the other isn't. And we talk about this kind of stuff together and about what kind of rituals people are doing with their kids and how they're approaching things like baby dedications or baptisms. Um, And everyone kind of has a different, you know, flavor on it. But in, for, for me, for practical, practically, you know, I pray with the kids before bed. Um, We, have read, you know, stories from like the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, although that's been less in the last few years. But um, trying to think of what else, you know, they participate via Zoom with their, you know, Sunday school at church. And so I make sure that they get to do that. And, you know, I just try to incorporate faith when it comes up. Um, but again, it's it's something that like, I I have to be mindful of, you know, Josh as well, and what he wants for our kids. And so it's a little bit of give and take, and it's not without its conflicts. Like one of the, the, the areas that we're still like undecided about is Bible camp, which I had mentioned at the beginning, which is really where I felt like my personal relationship with Jesus, to use that language, um, really blossomed for me as a young adult. And so I think, you know, I see that as really foundational because that was my experience. And he is not so sure about it. He thinks, that, you know, that those can be emotionally manipulative, like experiences sometimes. And so that's hard for me because I'm like, well, I I disagree. And so we have had conflict around that and our kids aren't old enough really to, to, you know, then sign up for that kind of thing yet. And I think we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But um, again, counseling and trying to figure out how, you know, where can we meet each other in the middle has been really important. Because again, I do think more important than Bible camp is how our relationship models the emotional environment for our kids. Like, how are we respecting each other? How are we showing love to each other? And then again, it's, it's going back to, can I trust God with my kids? Can I trust God to still be good, even if I can't control what ultimately they end up deciding about their faith? Because the truth is, you could have the most religious childhood upbringing in the world and still not choose that for yourself as an adult. We don't have that kind of control for our kids. So, yeah, it's it, but it's it's not without its moments of fear, um, for sure. Yeah, and you know what's so great about your story to me with all of this is that your kids, like you mentioned, they're not getting the one hundred percent biased side. This is the only way for people in general to live. Um, so then they go to school, or they go to get a job, or they go to college, and they they see these people that don't have faith. And think, oh well, you're just this awful person. You don't, you don't get it. You don't get life. Or the 
what I would call very unhealthy evangelical thought process of like proselytizing to anybody and everybody that doesn't believe the same. They're getting a probably a more realistic lifestyle experience of what in general of what life looks like in the home um, than they than they would get if you both were you know reading Jesus Storybook Bible and you know you know, watching veggie tales before bed to come down and all like all of those things are, you know, are great for, for people that want to do those things, but I feel like they're getting a really great rounded experience, um, which, and it sounds like that's what Josh is being supportive of, which is what I, what I, I think that's really good. Yeah. Thanks. We'll see what, what I say in 15 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that so that um, when I was talking earlier about some of the different places uh, that when you share your story, uh, you go deep enough to invite other people into um, the because I mean, you have stories weaved throughout your your uh, book about your your kids. Um, and that just, you know, I found myself there for, for two reasons. One, I, I laugh when you talk about the Bible camp thing. Uh, because like I said, I'm a high school and young adult pastor and uh, I absolutely hate Christian retreats. Like the, the big youth conferences that we go to and stuff, I have such a hard time with it. Um, and it's hate is a strong word. I, sh I should say a more fair word to say it is I have so much cognitive dissonance um, because I know what it did for me when I was younger. However, looking back or even being at something and, and watching what's happening I'm like, ah, oh, man, I don't know how I feel about this. Is it manipulative? Is it, you know, this, or is it that? Um, and I've always, yeah, I've always had a hard time with that. But the, the other aspect is um, just my, my wife and I, I mean, we do plan on having kids one day. Um, we're, like I mentioned earlier, we, we recently have, or we're about to uh, close on our first home together. Uh, we, we've been renting for the first four and a half years of our marriage. Um, and that was a big step that, you know, we felt was helpful before we decided to um, have kids. But when we do have kids, we don't want to raise them um, in like the way that we've seen a lot of other people do it. You know, um, not that her or I were raised in any kind of crazy, super conservative, you know, fundamentalist house, anything like that. Um, I would say that I got my kind of damaging theological stuff, not from my parents, but rather from like youth group and things like that. So I just, I have such like, I don't know. I want to, I don't want my, my, my kids to have to go through the same crap that I did, but at the same time, there was also so much good that happened. So like, what do I do with that? Uh, so you're wrestling um, with that uh, just throughout the book. And, and even just now is uh, so helpful even just for, you know, somebody like myself, who's just like, yeah, we're going to have kids one day. And I don't really want to mess that up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there'll be something right. That we'll do wrong with that. And it, yeah, there is no formula I think for raising kids who, you know, because, because theology and especially like developmentally, like I think about what I was like as a teenager or young adult and like, you know, that very emotional sort of like connected, like kind of experience was really key to kind of making this, making me want to make a commitment, you know? And so it is, it is tricky to kind of think about that as an adult now looking back, because you're right, there's a lot of things that were also damaging, I think, about 
some of those experiences. Um, yeah. To be determined. Yeah. 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 TBD. Um, so we have just a few more questions that we wanted to ask, but before we keep going, are you okay on time? We don't want to. Yeah. I think maybe 10 more minutes. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool beans. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what I'll do then is let me ask you this. Um, Hmm. Okay. Uh, what just practically, um, what advice would you have for our listeners right now? Anybody who's listening to this, who are finding themselves, um, in a similar boat to you, uh, what advice might you share with them? And then also one thing that comes up a lot, uh, in questions is like, how do we, uh, deal with our family members? Um, who just don't understand. And you share a, a, towards the end of the book, you share a story um, that just like when I read it, like, uh, like it, it hurt my heart. Um, but yeah, so what, what advice might you have? Wow. Well, I think the family thing is a really tricky one, um, depending on the theology that you were raised with. I... I feel like in overall, we've been really lucky to have incredibly loving um, parents and, you know, family unit, you know, extended family unit. Um, and it's also been hard because, like I said, or, you know, earlier in this conversation about, um, you know, when I first kind of, it really sunk in that Josh wasn't a Christian anymore, was in this relationship, you know, in this conversation with his dad. And... I think it's been tricky because, you know, I'm a Christian still, his parents are Christian still, he's not. So you can almost feel like you're on a, like a triangulation a little bit around like, okay, like you're still, you're still on our side. Like, let's, let's try to like, you know, work together to get Josh on back or something like that. And not that that's anything that they've ever said to me, but I just, you know, you can kind of feel that dynamic sometimes. Like when we go and visit, um, you know, are we going to go to church? Like there have been times earlier on where I would go to church with the kids, with his parents while he stayed home. And I think we had to get to a point where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm married to Josh. Like, like that's my, that's my primary allegiance. Like we're going to have a conversation before we go on a visit and decide together, how do we feel about Christmas Eve service? How do we feel about going to the grandparents church, you know? And then we, present a united front. So I think that that would be one thing is, you know, if you're dealing with in-laws or parents who are having a really hard time, can you together as a unit decide how you want to approach those kinds of conversations and then be on the same team? Because yeah, that's, and, and so, you know, so at this point, we usually just don't go to church when we're in North Carolina and we're, we're, we're going to go on a hike with our kids while you guys go. And, and that way it's showing, you know, that solidarity and commitment to each other. So that's one kind of tangible, practical piece of advice. Um, I think I've said this before, but counseling is really important. If your spouse doesn't want to go, go by yourself take care of yourself um, and find a safe place to process your own feelings and in grief. And, you know, like I said earlier too, that, you know, sometimes relationships don't survive this kind of shift and it is, it does make life and marriage a lot more difficult and challenging at times, depending on the dynamics of your relationship. So working through that with someone you trust um, who 
has professional counseling experience is really, really vital because, you know, grief is real. And if you don't let yourself grieve, you know, um, and lament what you've lost, I feel like then you're, you're still either holding on or it's going to come out sideways. You're going to be resentful. Nobody wants that. You know, you don't want that baggage with you. Um, so, and I think it, it takes both you and your spouse being willing to, to kind of have those conversations and, and figure out, well, then what is this new thing that we're creating? Okay. That's, that's what was before. Now let's, let's reimagine what this family life could look like. And I think that that's where I can get kind of fun because you're suddenly off, you know, you're off road a little bit. You're, it can be challenging, but it can also be really beautiful to, to incorporate your own traditions, to be more intentional, to talk about what you value and to really work on building a family that um, reflects what you do share together. Um, I don't know. Did I answer your question? I can't even remember now what it was. Yeah, no, that that's perfect. Thank you so much. Um, and also too, just uh, another great thing people would do is just read your book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blessed are the notes. Yeah. Then Stina, just, I mean, just to kind of close us up, do you have any other um, resources for listeners that are in similar situations as you and Josh? I mean, is there um, something they can look at online? Uh, is there anything like that that you'd recommend people go to? Like, like if this happened to them tonight, what's, or, you know, last night and they're listening to it now, um, or it's been something they've been struggling through on their own for a long period of time. What, what other resources might you recommend besides your book, which is fantastic? Yeah, thanks. Um, that's a great question. There isn't a whole lot out there, um, but one person who I've learned a lot from, her name is Susan Katz Miller. She writes a lot about Christian Jewish interfaith marriages, and she has a book um, called Being Both. And again, that's specifically about Christian Jewish um, marriage, which, you know, interfaith marriage, which is a lot more common in the U.S. Um, but now agnostic Christian is really, we're starting to catch up a little bit with, with the, you know, the numbers. But she also has something called the Interfaith Family Workbook, and it's really detailed. It's pretty intense. So I would say, you know, if you get it, don't feel like you have to answer all the questions because it's, you know, it covers like everything, but it does give you kind of a guide for conversation to have with your partner about your relationship and how you want to make decisions around things like holidays, um, raising kids. I think that um, it would be really helpful, you know, for people who are not in, you know, who are even contemplating choosing to get married to someone who is of a different faith. Like that's a little bit of a different story than mine, but I think having these conversations up front, you know, it really sets you up for success later on so that you can kind of realize, you know, is this a deal breaker for me? Um, and in our case, you know, we found one other couple at our church. Um, and again, I'm saying our, even though Josh doesn't attend, but we've been able to create kind of an auxiliary community um, that, you know, he doesn't go to Sunday services, but he's still part of the community because we've been able to form this, you know, interfaith supper club, we call it. But if you if you know of another couple that is in a similar, you know, place, um, see see about creating a community together. And what we did was there was a small, you know, they were asking for small group sign up at church. And um, I had just talked to this woman who I had never really met before, but someone told me, okay, she's also in an interfaith relationship. Her husband is agnostic. And so we were like, okay, we're going to just see if there's anybody else. And there was like, 
you know, three other couples that are like right away. Yes, we're in the same place. And, and we wouldn't have known. I think because a lot of times this kind of thing is at the, it's on the sidelines, right? It's kind of in the shadows. Um, so if you can find other couples that have this, or are in interfaith relationships, you know, we meet once a month, um, we share a meal and we just talk about what life is like because, you know, there aren't a whole lot of other places where this conversation is happening. So any way that you can create community for yourself, I would say, go for it, take a risk, see if you can find someone in your, in your church or in your broader community who understands what this dynamic is like. Mm. Yeah, you know, the first, the first time I experienced somebody, um, dealing with this sort of multiple faith relationship was between Michael and Lisa Gungor. Um, and I was a big fan of the liturgist podcast. And as you kind of listen through, you hear uh, <clears throat> Michael Gungor begin to, to, you know, deconstruct himself away from faith. Um, and oftentimes you would hear Lisa mention how much she loves him and how much she cares about him um, and how it's not, it's not nice and pretty and neat in the way that the church expects it to be. It's messy. It's, uh, it's difficult. Um, sometimes it's really difficult. Uh, but the, but the, but what I loved about the way she kind of worked through that and talked about that was that love for him and love in general was the name of the game. Um, and it didn't have something to do with, you know, although I'm, I'm sure it was a part of her process. It didn't have anything to do with, well, we're just going to pray for him and talk to him and get him back to church. It had more to do with her loving him so much that she allowed him to uh, experience life in this way and live through what he was feeling. Um, so as I heard that, I hear a lot of that same um sentiment in your story with Josh. So I, I, um, I really appreciate, really appreciate that out of you. And like, like I said, I, I'm sure it's not just beautiful all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's messy and hard, but, um, I think that's what relationships are. So I, uh, I just say thank you for your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And, you know, um, I think in that first season of the Liturgist podcast, I think it's the episodes called The Other Side of the Mattress. And I think that, you know, there's two of them um, where they talk to the, their wives and, you know, hear their side of like, what is it like to be the Christian when, you're, when your spouse is deconverting and, and how does that feel? And I think that that was one of the first times I really heard something that I resonated with in terms of, of what this feels like. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think finding ways to support and love each other not letting your love be tied to religious conditions. It's, it's not easy and there's grief and you have, and there's no way to bypass that grief. You really have to go through it. Um, but if you're both committed to each other and committed to making it work, it can be a really beautiful thing. Um, and so I just want to offer that as a, hopefully a story of hope mm. for people. Yeah. Yeah, well, Stina, uh, thank you so much uh, again for your story and for your time today. For listeners who want to connect with you, um, where can they find you? Yeah, um, well, my website is stinakc.com and my social media handles are all at stina underscore casey or stina.kc. Um, yeah, so just feel free to reach out. You can find my email address um, on my website as well. And you know, this is something that a lot of people, like I hear from a lot of people who are experiencing this dynamic. So if, if you're feeling alone, and that is one of the, the hardest parts of the grieving process is feeling like you're really alone in it. 
um, just know that you're not. And there's a lot of people who, um, you know, can resonate, I guess, with some of these, these feelings. So don't hesitate to reach out or, or find me online. Sweet. Is the, um, the nuns and nuns work that you do, is that, is there a website for that as well? Is yeah. that something that can be like, I can link to? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Nunsandnuns.org. And that's, yeah, whole, it's not marriage related at all, but it's, you know, if you're deconstructing your faith and you're a Protestant who's interested in nuns or interested in monastics, <laughs> um, and you want to have an open conversation without any like precursor to believing any one thing, Nuns and Nuns is a really beautiful community. Um, and yeah, the, the sisters that are in my neighborhood are part of that here in Minneapolis. And most of them are meeting online right now. So you don't even have to like, travel anywhere to to join a meeting so you can find information um there's chapters of nuns and nuns groups i think you know not in every state but in in a lot of parts of the u.s so there might be one near you sweet awesome well thank you again so much for your time and for for sharing your story with us and and to the world um we wish you all the best of luck in uh your continued journey thank you thanks so much for having me this was a really fun conversation Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And listeners, uh, as always, thank you so much for hanging out today and go Caps. Go Blackhawks and go Roseville. Go Roseville Raiders. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) All right. Peace and love, guys.